it seems a little um, awkward even for me to stand behind something. Haven't done it in quite a while. But today I wanted to make sure that I was tracking well with uh, what I wanted to say to you. Um, I want to start by reminding you that we've been looking at the life of Paul. We've been kind of covering that out of the book of Acts. We've jumped to Galatians and Romans to pick up those three years of study that he spent. And we tried to pull together the pieces. And last week, we tried to give you that foundational theology that he was teaching the world. That foundational idea. The apostle was saying to the world, listen, God stands outside of time and he looks at you. And he knows from the day you choose to follow him home, all of the path that you will follow, and to glorification when you are transformed out of this human mortal frame into the immortal frame that you were designed to have. That as he starts to bring that thinking and that theology into the church, the earthquake that started with Jesus continues with Paul. And the theological presentation that he makes is still rippling today. There are still people discussing what Paul meant when he was describing something that had not yet happened as if it had. When he could say that we were called, justified, and glorified in God from the moment we turned for home, it shook the world. He built all of his discovery. He built all of his theology and what he had read in, in the, the Testament, the first and only Testament he had, what we would call the Old Testament. He built all of it from his study and what he had understood. He was uniquely capable of carrying the message forward from this point. But there's a story before. And I want to catch the closing of the door on the prior story and the opening of Saul's story. Two famous prison moments. First, we're told in the book of Acts that Herod has already arrived at the decision to begin killing off the apostolic leaders. And after James has been killed, the people, the Jewish leadership is kind of encouraged and kind of excited about that. And so, they go, he goes forward with his, with his uh, attempts, and he arrests Peter. You remember this story? He arrests Peter, the next big voice. He's the guy who spoke at Acts chapter 2. He's the guy who seems to be the leader of the congregation. He's the one whose voice is the loudest. He's got all of this, this information and this study and the, the revelation of God that is empowering what he's doing. And as Peter is the voice, the main voice. Herod decides to put the main voice aside, put him in jail. And it's, it's happened before. They've attempted to, to, to jail him before, but now he's jailing him for the purposes of killing him. The Bible is interesting in these cases. In both, both of these prison cases, the faith of the believers are proudly displayed in the simple fact that they're just relaxed. Here the apostle is in jail... And he's asleep. Tomorrow he will die. And he's asleep. Like Daniel who has, who has a, a, an expectation that tomorrow he may die at the hands of the king. Daniel goes to sleep knowing that God will speak to him. 
Peter goes to sleep knowing that he is in the hand of God. Any believer has the opportunity to close their eyes for the last time in that manner. Knowing that as I close my eyes, I am still held gracefully in the hand of God. That my eternal, my eternal life is in His concern, in His care. And that He already sees me as if I have been glorified. He already knows what I will be when I am changed. So Peter's asleep. You remember the story? The angel comes in and wakes him up. The Bible actually says he kind of pushes him in the side. He kind of has to jab him to wake him up. Apparently Peter's not one of those easy to wake up guys. And so he shakes him awake. He starts to lead him out of the prison. Peter is still believing as he is moving out of the prison that he is having a dream. He doesn't realize that he's not just dreaming as he's walking beside the angel through open doors, past guards. When he arrives in the street and he's now outside the prison, the angel disappears and that's the first time Peter realizes that this isn't a dream. This is actually happening to him. One of my favorite little moments of the story. I love the fact that the the Bible inserts little humorous things within the text, within the narrative. When, when Luke decides to write the book of Acts, he includes Rhoda's story in the book of Acts. You remember the Rhoda, right? Uh, Rhoda happens to see the person who answers the door when Peter comes knocking. So Peter comes knocking on the door. He goes to John Mark's house because that's where everybody has gathered. And he's knocking on the door at John Mark's house, whose mother's name is Mary. She's just another in the list of Marys. All kinds of confusion about which Marys we're talking about. But John Mark's mother Mary's house. He's knocking at the door. She comes to the door. He asks to be let in. She recognizes his voice and doesn't open the door. In her excitement, she forgets to let the man who wants in, in off the street. And she runs to tell the others, Peter's at the door. Peter's still outside. This is like a a, a joke. He's still knocking on the door. Will somebody let me in? While she's telling the others, no, Peter's at the door. And they're saying, no, Peter can't be at the door. Peter's in prison. We've just been praying for him. He's locked up. He can't be knocking on the door right now. No, 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 he's at the door. And they say, well, it can't be actually Peter. It must be Peter's angel. Let's go see what's going on. So they, they, they don't believe that Peter could be at the door, but they do believe that an angel could be at the door. Isn't this wild? Isn't it funny how we get these things sort of crossed up? Here's, here's the, the apostle himself outside. He's just a man who God has let out. They think that an angel is there, not a man. And so they finally get to the door, they open the door, and I just wanted to, I, I want to bring you, as we, as we talk about this developing good news, I want to bring you this passage that nonchalantly closes the story of Peter. It just, it just a, a nonchalant, as if nothing really happens, and Peter departed. So he's been there, he's talked to them, he's explained what's just happened, and the Bible simply says, Luke records, Peter departed from there and went to an unknown place. That is the door closing on the story of Peter. We hear very little about Peter from this point on. From this point on, Peter's a footnote in the story of Paul. From this point on, the leader of the church is silence. Lots of discussion about where he went. Some say he went to Rome. Some say that he went to several other places, and I think that's the, the story I buy, because if you look in the book of books of Peter, First and Second Peter, you see him commenting to, to certain churches as if he has been there. He's telling the story of somebody who's been there, and he's speaking to those people. And so 
Peter disappears and he goes out into the diaspora to spread the gospel. This is one of the things, again, I need to remind you about. The church's doors are not closed by COVID. The church is the people, not the building. And I am very glad to have you here. I guess for me, it's harder to preach to an empty room than to a room with a few people in it. So thank you for being here and allowing me the opportunity to at least look at some faces while I do this. But in reality, we know in our church that somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand people a week have been seeing what goes out online. It's crazy. We have no idea. We, we have only about 600 church members. Therefore, unless all of you are watching it twice, it in fact means that we are touching a lot more lives because of being locked away and having to figure out how to do this better online. You know what that means, right? That means that God is taking bad news and turning it into good news. Right? Peter gets locked up in jail. They're preparing to kill him. And instead, what happens is Peter gets launched out into a missionary journey where he begins to tell the story of Jesus in the dispersed Jewish communities around the Roman Empire. It's the opening of something, not the closing of something. Yes, Peter departs to an unknown place, unknown to Luke as he writes it, unknown to the disciples as he leaves, but not unknown to God. Peter doesn't go to any of these places by himself. He goes in the authority and power of God, and he preaches the word of God. He uniquely himself is empowered to speak. You hear him in Acts 2. When you read his sermon in Acts 2, you see the, 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 the beautiful weaving of the story of God through the text of the Old Testament to present the story of Jesus. That's what Peter takes out to the dispersed church. Now Luke begins to focus on Paul. Now before we move on, I want to, write, want to remind you that Luke is not working in a vacuum. It's easy to look at this and say, well, Luke's a friend of Paul, that's why he's focusing on Paul. No, no I, don't, I don't believe that. The church has changed. The ministry of the church is going from a Jerusalem-centered ministry to a global ministry. You can see it coming. You can see this wave building. You can see it right there on day one. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Right there on day one in Acts chapter 2, all of those people who are gathered to hear Peter preach. Do you remember? People from all over the Roman Empire who speak all sorts of different languages. People of different ethnicities, different languages, different relationships to the church, different relationships to, to Jerusalem. All sorts of people, Jewish blood, and Greek blood are there during Acts 2, and 3,000 are baptized. And after that day of Pentecost are dispersed throughout the kingdom, throughout the empire. From day one, the church has been a missionary organization whose missionaries are sent to their home. Can I just say that that is still the church's primary missionary location? Our missionary work always begins at our own home first. To live consistently for Christ at home is one of the greatest challenges of faith. And yet, it is one of the most important things we can do. Because those are the people who are closest to our heart. And to gain the whole world and lose our own child 
will be a heartbreak for eternity. The Apostle Peter steps out into that. The Apostle Paul steps onto the stage. Now, the stage that was set there is set by Peter and his experience with Cornelius converting the occupier to become the friend. Right? You get the story, right? Cornelius the centurion is an occupier of the Jewish state. Judaism had been free from the, from the Gentile control of the Greeks for 200 years. And then in comes this Roman army and takes over the area. And this guy who is converted with all of his family is an occupier. I want you to understand The move of Christianity doesn't care what your previous address was or what your previous intent was. It cares only where you're headed, not where you've been. And this guy who is choosing to follow after God, an occupying force brought by the Romans to control the Jews, this guy is transformed and his entire household is baptized. Not just that. The Bible says the Holy Spirit falls on him. Peter has to defend this action to the rest of the church. Philip, the deacon. Remember Philip the deacon? Philip decides to follow up on some ministry that Jesus started. Philip goes to the Samaritans. Think about that. He is going to those people in that neighborhood. I've talked to you before about them. Who are those people and what is that neighborhood for you? If you think about it, when you look across the landscape of your life, where you avoid, what neighborhood you don't go to, what are those people? When you, when you immediately slip to a people and you have something that's decried, something that's, that some bad thing has happened, you immediately assume those people did it. Who are those people in your mind? Well, for, for the Jews, that, were, that was the Samaritans. They were the scapegoat for everything that was going on. They were the butt of every joke that was told in a snickering corner by some people who were whispering. That was the Samaritans. And Philip decides to go talk to those guys in their neighborhood. He didn't even wait for them to come. He went to them. And here's this deacon, Philip. He's not even one of the apostles. Where does he think he has permission to go talk to those people? And yet he's just simply stepping into the shoes that Jesus had left there. He's standing in the footprints of Jesus at a well talking to a woman some months before among the Samaritans. And a great move of God falls in the area of Samaria and many, many, many of them are converted. Philip, not to stop there, is on his way to the coast. It's at the end of the feast time. And there's a man from Ethiopia traveling along the road. And Philip can hear him reading the text. And as he's reading the text, Philip heals the Holy Spirit saying to him, catch up with him and speak to him. The Holy Spirit of God calls Philip now to reach the first African on the scene that we know of. Actually, You'd have, to tell your, you'd have to understand that when they start describing the people on that first day, that first day when, Pe- when Peter is preaching, there are people from across North Africa in that group. This Ethiopian eunuch 
is not here by accident. He is following in the path of his queen who had made a long trek from Ethiopia to see Solomon and was so impressed that she took back the message of Judaism to Ethiopia and many, many people converted to follow the Most High God. He is still in her tracks when he's met by Philip along the road and Philip explains to him that these stories you're reading in the ancient prophets point to Jesus. And right there on the spot, he is baptized. You know, we think of the Bible as an ancient text that doesn't really really relate to the world, this globalized world in which we live. But this has never not been a global church. It has never been a, a monolithic group. It has always been a place of many colors and many flavors and many sounds. It has always been the case that the church has had a broad stretch and has touched many, many, many kinds of people. You know these 12 disciples would take over their lifetimes the message of God from Ethiopia to England. And they would take it from Spain to India. Most of them would die in delivering it. But the message was so important that God, who stood outside of time, could see you for what you could be. And when you were willing to trust Him, would grant you a covering of His grace, would grant you a calling to His work, and would grant you a picture, would grant you a a record that would guarantee your resurrection and glorification. The message was so important and so powerful to them that they were willing to not just risk, but give their lives for it. Same message we get to talk about. Same message. So now we are here with Acts. It is centering itself around the ministry of Paul because Paul steps in and becomes the voice. If Peter is uniquely skilled and capable of speaking to the Jewish nation, Paul is uniquely prepared to speak to the rest of the nations. Here's what you have to understand. For the last 500 years, first Persians and then Greeks and then Romans have been building roads across the territory that will be the Roman Empire. There are Persian trails all the way to India that would be followed by Greeks that would be followed by Romans, and they are building paths and roads that will get people all over the the known world. The Apostle Paul is a Jewish man with a Roman father. He is not a Roman convert. He's not not a person just who is, is brought into the Roman nation. He's not a person who bought his freedom as a Roman. He's a born Roman citizen. It'll come up in the story. It'll come up in just a minute in the second imprisonment. But that is a huge benefit for him. That's like having a passport to go anywhere in the empire. So as he travels from place to place using the roads built by the Romans, the Greeks, and the Persians, as he moves around the the. the the, the oppression of the Romans, the oppression of the empire, the growth of the Romans, the arms of the Roman Empire, have made it possible for the gospel to be spread around the world in relative safety. 
And now the Apostle Paul, taking that role, taking that road, begins to talk about Jesus. Because he gets it. You see, the conversion of Paul was something of a, of a problem. That this man would, would, be, would be able to be a Christian is a little bizarre. Because you remember who he is, right? He's the persecutor of the Christians. You remember that about him? He's not a person that they even wanted to see. If Paul showed up, you were in trouble. He is uniquely qualified because he was so far from God. He was so far from Jesus. He was actually trying to kill the believers. He was actually trying to destroy the church. He is uniquely qualified because he needed grace so badly. He is uniquely qualified because he's a a Roman citizen. He is uniquely qualified because he speaks several languages. He is uniquely qualified because he has deep knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. He is uniquely qualified because the blood of Abraham flows through his veins. He is uniquely qualified because he is a person who encounters Christ himself. He doesn't have to be told the story. He meets Jesus on the road. He's the right man for the job. He's uniquely that right man. He is qualified in a way that makes him the best voice for grace. Because the one who needs grace desperately gets it. The one who needs grace desperately gets it from God and understands the depth of that need. Do you remember when you realized you needed it? Do you remember how amazing it was to know that it was available? That's why this guy is the right voice for us to hear now. Because he goes from town to town and he says to those people, I was one of the people trying to destroy Christ and the church. And he reached out to me. And the audiences that he spoke to would go, Really? No. And he would say, Yeah. I was in charge of persecuting Christians. I was there when Stephen was killed. I held the coats of those who cast the stones that buried him in a pile outside of Jerusalem. I am chief among sinners. And if Jesus could save a guy like me, he can save you too. You see, the gospel's not a theological construct for the Apostle Paul. The gospel is a reality of God reaching him. It's personal to Paul. It's testimony to Paul. It's not just theology. It's testimony. He builds it on the solid theology of his Old Testament training. 
but it's the testimony of what it's done for him that reaches people. When the Bible says that you have been justified, that you now stand before God as if you had never sinned, that's what justified means. That you have been justified, covered by His grace, washed in the blood of Jesus, justified by God. He says not only are you justified, but you are called. Because... Because to know you are justified is to be empowered to speak of what's available to someone else. You are uniquely qualified to speak to people like you. You are uniquely qualified to testify of what God did for you. We worry way too much that we need to get the theology right. You don't need to get the theology right. You need to get your own story right. Just tell your story. This is who I was, and this is what happened, and this is who I am now. Spend as little time as possible on who you were, and as much time as possible on what Jesus has done. You were justified, and so you were called to speak about what happened to you when you were justified. How He changed who you are. When all of this story of what Paul is doing starts to ripple around the church. The church's voice begins to speak. And unfortunately, very often, the church's voice lags behind the movement of God. Very often, listen carefully, the church's voice lags behind the move of God. There's a wave moving across the world that is carrying the message of righteousness by faith. It is carrying the message of the death and resurrection of Christ. It is carrying the message that God is desirous of winning the entire world, Gentile and Jew alike. And back in Jerusalem, where the focus is no longer, messengers are coming out from the church leadership. We find Paul commenting on it in Galatians chapter 2, just in this simple statement, those who came from James. James is the, is the head of the church back in Jerusalem. We don't know if James actually sent them or if they just came claiming that James sent them because when you hear James speak, it doesn't sound like a guy who's going to send these people out. But when they arrive out in the hinterlands in these little villages and little towns where Paul and Peter and others have been preaching and talking, as they arrive in these places, they say, they didn't tell you all the things you need to know. No, you have to be circumcised to become a follower of Christ. You have to follow the rules and the laws of Judaism to become a follower of Christ. Here's the book. Follow the rules in here. And they will have a, a, a conference, a general conference of the leadership of the church, and they will battle this question out. And they will say, this is the, this is the statement that sticks out the loudest when Peter reappears in this conference. Peter says, why would we place on those who are coming to Christ a weight of a burden we couldn't even bear ourselves? And so the early church at this conference said, let's cut down on all of this rule business. Let's let them learn the text themselves. It says, isn't Moses preached every day in the synagogue around the world? But let's ask them just to do a couple of things. Avoid meat offered to idols. Avoid blood. Avoid, avoid fornication. 
God bless you as you seek to follow him. That's the letter they send. Out into the land. That's the letter that Paul and Barnabas will go to the church with. Because Jesus isn't interested in piling extra burdens on you. He's interested in having you yoked together with him that he might help you lift the burden. Of course there's a reason for obedience. Because when you find yourself aligned with him, you will find yourself living a better life. You want to live your best life, live a biblical one. You want to live your best life, discover Sabbath. You want to live your best life, discover there's no such thing as ghosts, that in fact God says you're asleep when you die. You want to live your best life? Lean on Jesus. You want to live your best life? Let Him lift the burdens. You want to live your best life? Trust Him. Cast all your cares upon Him because He cares about you. Don't worry about things, but in everything pray and give thanks. Because God wants you to live your best life, your most abundant, your most wonderful possible life on our stinky little planet. And he already sees what life's going to be like when you get to see what he's made. My One of my sons made a, a, a tree fort for his three sons. Now, I don't know if you've ever had something like that made for you, but the anticipation is almost as fun as the experience of actually having it. Knowing that it's going to be built, watching it in the construction process, knowing that it's just for you, and then seeing it finally on the day when you're released to climb up the rope ladder and get into your little fort. Just just a, a few sheets of plywood and a handful of two-by-fours stuck up in a tree. It's really all a tree fort is. But for some little boys, it's a magical place. A place where they can be adventurers. They can be pirates. They can fly airplanes. They can go to the moon all while they're in their fort. You see, when the father builds the fort for the kids, he knows what kind of things will be discovered there. He knows what kind of joy will be encountered there. And when God calls us home and we we trust him and turn his direction, he already knows what life will be like when we get home. He sees the smiles on our faces when we arrive in the kingdom. He sees the joy of transformation that floods through our body and builds us into the person we were meant to be. Because he knows what the end is while he stands at the beginning with us. It's not all that happens. Peter and their, Paul and Silas are traveling through Philippi. When they arrive in Philippi, there's a, a new event going on. It's in Acts chapter 16. They're beginning to share the message. This is a major Roman city. They tend to go to a lot of major cities because these are lanes of transaction and time. And in this major Roman city in Philippi, they begin to preach. And as they begin to preach, we discover this woman in Acts chapter 16, verse 16, who shows up. They're going around, and this woman shows up, 
And as they went to prayer one day, a certain slave girl, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us. Who's the us? Remember, Luke is writing. He's there. He said, met us. A certain slave girl met us. She's possessed by a spirit of divination. Possessed means that there's an evil spirit in her. Okay? She brought her masters much profit by her fortune-telling. The girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us a way of salvation. It's an interesting statement. It's true. So there's a demon testifying to who these guys are. There's a demon testifying to who these guys are. This is both incredibly cool and a little weird. It's kind of incredibly cool and incredibly weird to me. So, as she speaks, I want you to catch one word. Depending on your translation, this might not even be there. They may have, a, they may have translated the A into a the. But I want you to catch the fourth word from the end of the sentence. They are proclaiming to us a way of salvation. It doesn't take much to mess up the truth. Because they're not proclaiming a way of salvation. They are proclaiming the way of salvation. It's just one subtle difference. One tiny change. You don't notice it in most English translations. You'd have to go back and look at how the Greek translates it. A way of salvation. And she follows them around. She follows them around until the Apostle Paul becomes greatly annoyed. You know what I love about the Bible? It tells us that people who are serving God with great power and authority can still get annoyed. The Apostle Paul is greatly annoyed. And he turned and said to the Spirit, not the girl, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour. Two things I want to say about this. Number one, be careful about the voices you align with. Because not everybody who shares your message shares your values. Not everyone who shares your message shares your ideals. And the message gets corrupted in very subtle ways. Be careful who you align with. And I'm not wanting you to be afraid. I don't want you to be afraid of every other Christian who speaks about Jesus. I don't want you to be afraid of everybody else who holds values like yours. But I want you to be careful about aligning with them. I want you to be careful about throwing your weight behind their message. You are called to a unique message. You are called to to share the message of the power of prayer. To share that there is transformation available for every man on the planet in Jesus Christ. To share that there is conversion available no matter how far a person might have strayed. And to share that there was only one 
hope. You see, our, our world believes that we can establish a heaven utopian place right here on the planet. And a hundred million people have been sacrificed over the last century to that dream. Karl Marx has a good idea. It's a good idea. Everybody gets equal shares in everything. Everybody loves everybody and is cared for by the government. It's a great idea. But it doesn't take into account one simple thing. That the heart of man is broken and sinful. And until we understand that those aren't the same things that the Bible is teaching, we will struggle. We will struggle. So here we are at this moment and this woman is saying, these are the men who are teaching the teachings of the Most High God. And they're coming with a way of salvation. And the Apostle says, leave. This is why they get arrested. Did you realize that? They get arrested for casting a demon out of this woman. They get thrown in prison. And I just want to leave you with the, the, the picture, uh, not, even, not even of their exit. I want to leave you with the picture of what happens in the prison to a person who knows they're in the hand of God. Remember the story? Paul and Silas. They're in the depths of the prison. They're not just in the prison on the outskirts somewhere. They're in the depths of the prison. They are locked into some kind of wooden shackle down there in the depths of the prison. And they start singing. I don't know if they're good singers or not. I hope they are. I don't know if you've ever been in a place that's surrounded with just really hard stone surfaces. The voice in there can be beautiful. I imagine that they sing well, just because that's what I imagine. I imagine that in this place, down in the depths of the prison with these hard rock walls, the message of Jesus is echoing across and bouncing around. And the prisoners are caught up in what's happening. And the prisoners are listening to these two guys sing. No one has ever been in the dark depths of this prison and just sang. And the other prisoners just can't believe it. Who are these guys? Why are they doing this? Well, they're, they're followers of Jesus, and followers of Jesus can sing in a prison or in a hospital or in a church. Because Jesus goes with you to the prison or the hospital or the church. No one's ever so far away that Jesus doesn't go, for the, go with them. And so here they are. The voice of God to the Gentiles. Silas, who seems to be his writer, his scribe, facing death. Like Peter in Jerusalem, out in Philippi, they're facing death. Peter just takes a nap, and they just sing. Because the message of Jesus is that powerful. 
Because the assurance of salvation is that true. Because the knowledge of the resurrection changes how you see everything else. So here's what I want to say to you, church. And to you, church. Is it changing you that way? Have you learned that this is good news? You see, I had a, I had a professor when I was in college. He, used to, he was the one who taught us to preach, so if you don't like what I do, we can blame him. He told us that until salvation makes a difference in your life, it's just good news. It's good information. It's a great historical event. Until the stories in Acts, until the story of Paul, until the story of Peter becomes something that we take personally. It's just good information. It's just a good view on life. It, it, it is good. I mean, it's better to live in alignment with Scripture, even if you're unconverted, than to live in disalignment because it will bring you blessing. But when you're converted, when you're sure that God is going to rescue you from this planet someday, even if it takes dying first, it puts you at rest. And if they haul you into jail for your faith or for your testimony or for casting a demon out of somebody's favorite pet, you can sit in the bottom of that prison with your hands and feet locked into some, some sort of shackle. And just start to sing praises to God. Because you're not questioning who He is. You're trusting His promise. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that You would help us, Your church, Your children, your family to be aligned and committed and convinced and converted in the knowledge that you are God and that you are God alone and that the sacrifice on the cross was for me that it's personal. Father, I ask that each one of us would commit ourselves again right now to accepting what you have done as ours. Lord, we want our name written in the Lamb's book of life. We choose to trust you. We choose to follow you. We choose to let you be Lord and us be your followers. We choose to believe that we cannot get ourselves into a problem you can't fix. We can't commit a sin that you can't forgive. And then we can't be so bent that you can't straighten us out. 
where we need to be straightened out, we ask for you to straighten us out. Lord, right now there's a whole bunch of discussions about race and all of us have an opinion and all of us are part of the problem. Help us to become part of the solution. Right now we live in the midst of the world that's, that's been told so many lies that they don't even know what the truth looks like anymore. Help them to see it in the church. Lord, I pray that we would be that picture that we would live a life that, that rings true. That the testimony would not just be words, but it would be actions. It would be the way we care about them. That it would be loving and kind and gentle and Christ-like. I pray for a transformation in the world to begin in the church and to begin here at Grace Point in this building and across the sweep of those who are listening. And I ask for all of us the kind of faith that believes your promise no matter what.